0: That we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the house of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. The seventh letter written to this uh, congregation at Laodicea. So, Revelation chapter 3, and you can, uh, we'll begin reading at verse 14. Okay. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, And to the angel of the congregation in Laodicea, write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you are either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, for you say I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes. So that you might see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the congregations. Now, this is the last of the seven letters written to these congregations as recorded in the book of Revelation. And when you look at all of these letters and you put them together, they give us certain messages, certain uh, statements that we need to take uh, with a very serious And to read very significant words to us, not only as individuals, but as congregants. And not only as uh, individuals, but as a congregation gathered together. So, for example, if you remember in chapter 2, he wrote to the congregation at Ephesus. And if there is a particular focus he would want us to remember about that letter, it is, the Lord is to be our first love. Our devotion is to be to him. Remember, he said, you have lost your first love. That was the concern of that letter, that they would rekindle and and fire up that great love that they initially had with the Lord, which has somewhat waned. And that's where it all starts, right? We're to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when he gets to the next letter, which is the letter written to the congregation at Smyrna, this is a congregation that was undergoing a great deal of persecution. So much so that he mentions the, uh, the, the death of some that have suffered because of their faith and others that were put into prison and how the evil one had set them sort of like in his sights and was coming after them with uh, great fanfare and with great attack. And so our great love for the Lord ought to result in the kind of devotion that no matter how serious the challenges may be to our lives, no matter how deep the persecution may get that we would remain faithful unto him. No matter how difficult the trials and tribulations, our faith in the Lord would not waver. So, our love for God is number one. That love ought to manifest itself, he would say, with such endurance that when the trials of life come, we are strengthened. And that we stand firm, even to the point of death. Because he mentions to us in the letter to Pergamum. Maybe if we can just lower that a little bit. It's a, just a, it may not bother anyone else, but it's sort of uh, ringing a little too too strongly for me. But in chapter 2, beginning at verse 12, he writes to the congregation at Pergamum. And he mentions Antipas, his faithful witness, who was killed among you. So our love for the Lord must be foundational a love that stands the test of trials, trials and tribulations, even to the degree to which it may cost us our lives. He goes on to write to the congregation at Thyatira. And in that congregation, basically, he's telling them that they need to pursue purity. So not only do they need to focus on their love for the Lord and their devotion to him, no matter what the trials and tribulations might be, and that further, we would seek purity of heart, purity of soul, and purity of life. For he is the one, he says in this letter, looking at uh, chapter 2, like verse 24, where he, sa- he tells us that he's the one who searches the mind and heart. And he's looking for purity of life with regard to everything that is relevant about us. And then when he writes to the congregation at, at uh, Sardis, And Philadelphia, he reminds them that they are to wake up. The congregation at Smyrna, uh, at Sardis, he says, "If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief." So he tells us we need to be people who love the Lord preeminently, and that that love ought to exhibit itself in endurance, even during difficult trials and tribulations, even to the point of death. He tells us that this love of God that would enable us to endure also needs to be of such a kind that we seek purity of life and of thought. And not only ought to be we to be ones who seek purity of life, we are to be ones who remain vigilant and alert in our service in our ministry, because the Lord is coming is coming soon. And then he would tell us. Uh, here in this congregation of Laodicea that we need to have the doors of our hearts open to him so that he would do the work that he sees us having need of he stands at the door and knocks And if any man opens the door, he will come in. You know, whenever we look at that verse, it oftentimes is a passage that is related to salvation. We oftentimes hear it that way, and there's relevance to that. The Lord stands at the door of our hearts, and he's knocking. And there's basically these three steps, you know, to opening that door or to experience salvation in all of its fullness is, number one, we come to realize that Yeshua is outside the door of our lives. That we have a need for him because we're not really walking with him. Or that there are things going on in our lives and we need rescuing. We need salvation. And we realize we haven't experienced it because the Lord is outside our lives, not inside our lives. And the moment we realize it is he who is outside our lives and we hear him knocking, perhaps it is through something that somebody says to us. Maybe it's a message from the God's word that we hear. Maybe it's a song that we hear sung. Whatever it is, we begin to hear him knock. For me, it was the reading of the book of Matthew. The Lord began to knock on my heart as he began to expose it to myself and I began to see the kind of person I was and the need that I had and that it was he who could provide that, that need. For he was outside my life, but he was knocking on the door of it and he was attempting to wake me up to himself. And then it was for me to open the door. And it's interesting, he's outside the door, Right? And it's the, it is we who have, as it were, the doorknob on the inside. All of us, I think, have seen that popular painting of Yeshua knocking on the door. when you look at it carefully, there's no doorknob on the outside. There's only a doorknob on the inside because we have to open the door for him to enter into our lives. And so oftentimes this passage has been understood in the sense of salvation. And I think there's certainly an application. But in reality... This passage is about a congregation. The Lord is outside this congregation. And he's knocking on the door of the congregation. And the congregation, even though they may be made up of believers, the congregation needs to open the door to him because they have, in a sense, pushed him out of the life of their congregation. And that's what this letter is about. Look what he says at the front end. As all the letters have an introduction of Messiah, this introduction has Yeshua as the one who is the Amen. He is the faithful and true witness. He is the firstborn or the beginning of God's creation, which is not a really good translation. It really should be firstborn of God's creation. We'll come back to that. But take a look. First of all, he is called the Amen. Now, that's a Hebrew word. It's just transliterated into the Greek. And by calling him the Amen, it comes from the Hebrew word that means faith. That's the word for faith. So when we say our prayer, and at the end of our prayer, we say Amen. We're saying we place our faith and trust in you with our request or with our praise or whatever our prayer may consist of. Amen doesn't mean I just finished my prayer, and if somebody else would like to pray, they now can add whatever they would like to add to this prayer. Amen is a statement of affirmation, I believe you God, I have faith in you Lord, I leave this at your feet to do with as you see fit because I trust you no matter how this prayer may be answered or even if it's not answered as such. I trust you. And so when this passage says, I am the amen and the faithful witness, he's saying, I am the true and trustworthy witness of the living God. And so that what Messiah says about God the Father is trustworthy. What he tells us about salvation is trustworthy. What he tells us about himself as being the savior of the world is trustworthy. What he tells us about our future, where we are headed, not only into eternal life, into the heavens, but that we are headed into a time and and place where Messiah will reign over the ends of the earth, that is our hope. And that's why the coming of Messiah is called the blessed hope. And it's the hope we're to place our faith and trust in. He said, I am coming again. He said, behold, I come quickly. He is the amen, the faithful and true witness who testifies of God's plans and purposes. And through that testimony, we can rely upon it. We can trust in it. We can believe in it. And so he is the Amen. He is the one that we can trust in. As the faithful witness, he's the one who has testified of all that God wanted him to make known unto us. And so everything that transpires in the scripture from Genesis to the book of Revelation ultimately comes through the crucible of Messiah. And he is testifying of the faith, faithfully of God's will and ways to us. That's why the word of God is preeminent. We need to be individuals who are students of the word. We need to be people who are devoted to the word of God. It is his word and in it we have life and truth. And not only is the amen Not only is he the faithful witness, but he's also the firstborn of God's creation. Now, oftentimes, cults have looked at this and said, See, he's the beginning of creation. He has a beginning. But the word firstborn doesn't mean that he has a beginning. It's speaking of his preeminence. Because the firstborn in the Jewish family is the one who had the preeminence of primogeniture. The one who had the right of the firstborn. And so he was given a double portion. That's what you see with Isaac. That's what you see with Jacob. That's what you see with Joseph. And on and on it goes through the scripture. That's why Paul writes in Colossians that he is the firstborn of all creation, which means he is the one who is preeminent over creation. And that's why in the book of Colossians he goes on to say, and he holds all things together. He holds it all together because he's preeminent in it. Not that he's first born of it or from it. He's a creator. In the beginning, God created, it says, or it says in Genesis, I mean in John, right? That in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And then it goes on to speak about how he created the world. Everything was made through him and nothing was made that was not made by him. And so, in the book of Revelation, here, where he's called the firstborn of all creation, it means to say he's preeminent in all of God's creation. And his preeminence is exercised in that he holds all things together. And that's the watchword of the book of Colossians. Interestingly enough, Colossae was, was one of the cities that was on the outlines of Laodicea. And so, the, and by the way, Paul writes. In the letter to Colossae, he says, make sure that you share this letter with the congregation at Laodicea. So it's interesting, the same themes can be seen in the book of of Colossians and what is said here in the book of Revelation, being that they were in the same geographical vicinity. So Messiah is the one that can be fully trusted. He's the amen of God, as it were. He's the faithful witness of God. And he is the one who has preeminence over all of creation. And then he goes on to say, this one who has preeminence says, I know your works. Now we saw last time in every one of these letters, he says, I know what you're doing. I know what's going on in your congregation. The angels are assigned to these congregations. They do his bidding. They make known what is transpiring. And in one sense, they don't need to make known what's transpiring because he's omniscient, he knows all things. In previous letters, when he says, I know what's going on in a given congregation, it was positive. I know your suffering, I know your tribulation, I know of your faith, but here it's negative. When he says, I know your works, but the works that he knows of, he says, are neither cold nor hot. Now, one of the interesting things at Laodicea, the water source at Laodicea, was six miles away from the village or the city, and it was a hot spring. That's why this region also was known for its medicinal benefits. So there was a school of medicine here at Laodicea. And at Laodicea, they had developed, with the use of the hot spring, certain eye salve that was thought to help, not cure, but help people that were losing their vision. And, of course, the hot springs were things that people would take these medicinal baths in in order to be strengthened and to gain health where it may have been waning. When these aqueducts, when the Romans built these aqueducts that would bring the water into the village, they brought the water from the hot springs. And as the water flowed over six miles down these stone and concrete aqueducts, The hot water would begin to cool. And by the time it got to Laodicea, it was not cold, but it was lukewarm. It's very interesting how Messiah would use the very image of something they're very well aware of. And the problem with lukewarm water is that it did not benefit the people one way or the other. If it remained hot, it would still have its medicinal benefits. If it was cold, like from a well, it would quench their thirst. But rather the water came in lukewarm. Messiah's point is this congregation no longer was of any benefit to the community in which it was serving, in which it was established. And he says that because of your lack of benefit to the community, he says, I'm going to just spew you. That's the King James. I'm going to spit you. That's what the New International says. But the Greek literally says, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Messiah is very disturbed by their lack of benefiting the congregation or those around them. Because that's why the Lord puts a congregation into existence, right? That's why he brings believers together is not so that they could simply be a country club of individuals that enjoy one another. And That's a danger we need to be very much concerned with because when our service is over and we go into the hospitality, the dining room, we enjoy one another's company. We have to be careful that that's not all that we're about. It's something that we're about. We want to enjoy each other's company. We want to bless one another. We want to sit around. Even Yeshua says, open the door and I will sup with you. I will eat with you. It's a good thing to eat with one another. But if that's what becomes preeminent, well, then we've become a country club. We've become a country club with some music and some lessons But we've become a country club. We've become an entity to ourselves and of no benefit to anyone. And that's what Yeshua is concerned with with this congregation at Laodicea. Our congregation is not just to be a country club. It's not to be a country club at all. It's not to be an entertainment thing either. As much as I draw attention to how wonderful our musicians are, I mean, we have to be very grateful to the talent musically that's in this congregation. We're a small congregation. Half of us are up here playing. You know, I mean, that's just like incredible. Where do you find that, you know? Normally in a congregation our size, if you have somebody that can play like a banjo, you're doing good. Yeah, I was going to say a Jew's harp. You're doing good, you know? But we've got all of this. I mean, this is amazing to think about. And then there's all of that stuff back there. But if that's what we're about, then we've become like a concert that we sing a little bit too. You know, and this is not about entertainment. Oh, we want to have good stuff here. Of course, we want to give our best. We may not be the best, but we want to give our best, you know? And when we have our dancing, you know, it's not a playhouse. It's not a dance theater. As much as I enjoy those kinds of things, although you won't see me dancing, but you'll, you'll see me enjoying music and others that are doing their thing. But if that's what we are, an entertainment thing, then we become lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, because it's of no benefit to anyone except ourselves and those that are doing it, because they're in a lot of fun. If it fails to be an expression of gratitude to the Lord, it's no longer worship. It's just an exercise in music or in theater or in dance or in food. And once we start going down that road, we become inconsequential and of no real benefit. And the moment we become of no real benefit is because we're neither hot nor cold. We're not helping anybody anywhere. Somebody needs help medicinally, I mean, as as an illustration, or someone needs a cold drink, we don't have it because we're lukewarm. And so we've become irrelevant. And when we become irrelevant, the Lord says, time to move on. Because the Lord sent his disciples out to go into all the world to be relevant, to make disciples of all nations. And you can't make disciples if you're irrelevant. You can't make disciples if you're not in touch with people to make disciples with. You can't make disciples if you don't know how to make disciples. And you can't make disciples if you're not a disciple. I mean, there's like this domino effect. And so we need to make sure, I speak about ourselves, but the lesson here is we need to make sure we're about the business of God and we're in preparation for it, that we're in training for it. And we all need training. We never stop training. That's what a disciple is. It's an ongoing training lesson through all the days of our life. And we keep serving to the best of our ability with the gifts God has entrusted with, with, the energy we have, with the health that we have, to the best of our ability. And that's why it's very important. Messiah says in these letters, our love for God is preeminent. And it's of such a preeminence, we're willing to sacrifice anything, even if it means our lives. We want to be relevant. And that means some people should be getting angry with us. Some people should be pleased with us. And some people will suffer because of us. And if that's not happening, then it's probably because we're not making any real impact anywhere. And so what's happening here in Revelation, he's saying, listen, don't be like the congregation at Ephesus that doesn't love God first. Don't be like this, be like this congregation at Smyrna that's willing to suffer for their faith. Be like this congregation of Pergamum that has great endurance, despite the fact that even someone dies for their faith in their midst. And then he says, be of such a congregation and of such a person That sound doctrine is important to you. Remember he says, you know, I have this against you, that you tolerate the teaching of Jezebel and all of that. You know, and he's saying, look, you need to have sound doctrine. Got to avoid the extremes. It's got to be sound, balanced doctrine. And he's talking about the heart and soul of the faith. He's talking about who is Messiah. What has he done for us? How has he done it? And what devotion ought we to give to him because of it? The core of the faith, the centrality of the faith. We get off on all these peripheral issues. But we have to be people of sound doctrine if we're going to withstand the onslaught of the enemy. We have to be a people that pursue purity of heart and life. And so he says we've got to be pursuing holiness without which, the writer to the Hebrews says, no one will see the Lord. We have to pursue it. He develops it within us. And so we have to be a people that are opening the door for Messiah to make those changes in our life and in our congregation's life, right? So he goes on to say, look, I will spew you out of my mouth. The problem with them is they become very content with who they were because nobody was angry with them. You know, the people in the community were all okay because... They didn't make any problems for them, so the people in Smyrna and the people and the believers in Pergamum they were being attacked by the community because they weren't content just to be uh, there. They were ruffling some feathers, and people got upset with them. But then, on the other hand, they not only were they sort of like complacent, but they were very prideful. Look what they say: "For you say I am rich, I have prospered." I need nothing. I mean, that's incredible statements that they have it all together. They got the doctrine right. They've got the resources. Everything is in place. But the Lord says that's because you're evaluating your ministry on the wrong basis. They may have had a really nice sanctuary. They may have had all of the electronic gadgetry. They may have had, you know, one of the best speakers in the community or in the country at that time. They may have had the resources. They said that they were rich and that they were profitable. But from the Lord's evaluation, those things were not what was important. The things that were important was their devotion to him and the consequence of that making a difference and being of benefit to those in the community. So he goes on to say, look, I counsel you. He tells him to do this, to buy from me. He doesn't literally mean to buy from, but he means to receive this from me. And whatever it takes to get it, be willing to pay the price. That's what he's saying. You can't acquire this. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. But he's saying whatever sacrifices, whatever changes need to be made to receive these things, you need to make them. No matter what it is. And the first thing he says is that you need to buy from a gold refined by fire. Whenever you read that word refined, it means being disciplined. So he's saying whatever it takes, you need to submit to my discipline. And it may not be pleasant. It may be hard stuff that you need to get through in order to come out the other side refined as gold is refined. Without all of the impurities. And so he says, number one, you need to submit to my disciplinary advice and direction. Maybe advice is not the, quite, quite the right word. But my disciplinary prescription. And then the second thing he says is that you need to have these white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. So what he's saying is you need to pursue righteousness. You need to pursue holiness. That's what white garments are all. Remember, we already looked seven times, reference to it in the book of Revelation. This was one of them. And he's saying to them, look, you need to, to do whatever it takes in order to be made holy. And we say it every week, holy, 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 just like the seraphim say it all the time around the throne of grace. We need to be pursuing holiness and righteousness. And the Lord tells us, look, there are two things we are supposed to be. We're supposed to be light and salt. Isn't that what Yeshua says? You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be of any benefit to the world? It's like dust then. It's like sand. But if it has its saltiness, now it can be a flavoring. It can be a preservative. It can have benefit for however it might be used. It gets sprinkled around. And so if it's salt, it doesn't get dumped out and thrown away. It gets sprinkled all over so that it could be of benefit as salt is meant to be a benefit. And he says not only are we to be the salt of the earth, that means we're to be in all the world, but he says we're to be a light that shines. We're the light of the world not just in our own community, but to the world we're to be shining. And he says, so let your light shine so that they might see your good deeds and glorify our Father who enables us to shine as lights or to salt, be salt around. And that requires a pursuit of righteousness and of holiness. And so he tells us, number one, that we're to be willing to submit to the disciplinary disciplinary work of Messiah so that we can be refined as gold is refined and shine and be what God would have us to be. We are to be um, pursuing righteousness and holiness so that we can be a light to the world and the salt of the earth. And then he says that they are to put... Uh, and, and he says, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He's talking about so you can understand spiritual truths that God is making known to us, particularly in his word. Here he talked about the eye salve that was developed in Laodicea. It's interesting he uses that analogy. Just as you know, see, this is an area where eye salve has been developed to help people see. You need to see straight. And you need to see clearly. And that only comes... By seeing Messiah and knowing his word. And so he's telling us this is how the correction that needs to be made. You need to be refined. Submit to my disciplinary work. You need to pursue righteousness. And you need to look into and perceive and understand and live out the truth of the word of God. And how are we supposed to do that? He says, look, those whom I love. I reprove. This disciplinary action is not cold-hearted. It's motivated out of the very love of God. And by his love, he would work his will out in and through us. And so he says, look, in love I reprove and I discipline. So be zealous for repentance to turn from your ways. And the one we are to turn to is the one who is standing at the door, knocking to make that difference. He desires it for us. Even to the point, he's saying, look, I'm ready to spew you guys out of my mouth, but not just yet. And I want to make a change. I want to make a difference for you. But you need to submit to me. You need to open the door and you need to welcome me in. And when you do, he doesn't say, now I'm going to go get to work. He says, then we'll eat together. So the Lord is always gentle and compassionate in his work in our lives. We always think it's going to be rough sailing. But at the end of the day, when we look at from the outside, or I should say when we come out the other side, we've seen how gentle the Lord really has been. And we see how productive his work uh, becomes. And so then he says, and look, if you do this, he says, um, the one who conquers I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So Messiah has told us, you know, that he, when he speaks about sitting down on his throne, he's talking about the throne of David. You know, right now he's at the right hand of the father. He's not on the throne. He's seated alongside the father's throne, but his throne is the throne that will be established in Jerusalem on Mount Zion in the temple, the throne of David. And so he's telling us that one day we will sit and reign with him. We will sit and reign with him. So be hopeful, serve in anticipation of what the Lord is going to do for us and what he's going to have us, how he's going to have us yet serve. Well, let's pray. While I pray, the ushers can get ready and the worship team can come on up. Father in heaven, we thank you for this final letter among the seven. Lord, this is the hardest of all the letters, the most challenging, the most difficult to hear. The idea that Messiah would spit them out of their mouths is a very serious statement. And Father, we would take inventory of our own lives and of our own congregation. Lord, where there is a lukewarmness, may we face that reality, see our lives and our congregation as you see it, not as we see it. And that, Father, seeing things through your eyes, may we be responsive to you, hurry to the door, open that door, welcome you in, that you would come and dwell with us, that you would sup with us, and then you would begin the work of of restoration, you would begin the work of change and transformation that will result in us being a holy people, a righteous people, a serving people, a beneficial people, a people who are making a difference in other people's lives because we've allowed you to make a difference in our own lives. And so, Lord, we do turn to you. And we do pray that you, by a work of your Spirit, through the empowerment of your glory, that you would change us and enable us to be the light unto the world that we are meant to be and to be salt in our, in our world that is in great need of such saltiness. Lord, we want to be agents to proclaim your word. So help us to learn your word well. And help us, Lord, to be good people to others, to love our neighbor as ourself. That when we speak, they will consider what we have to say. So, Lord, may the lessons of these congregations be reflected on deeply by each and every one of us. And may it be reflected on deeply by our congregation as a whole. And may you help us, Lord, that we would be a praise to your name. We bless you, we thank you, we are grateful for all of your good gifts to us. For we pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel with a large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.